Geek Nerdery. Player one, press start to play. to episode number 35 of graveyard duck podcast with you as always my name is scott and i'm wes and wes uh welcome back to the uh show we're um Thank taking a little bit of a what's that i said was i gone <laughs> well you know doing this every other every other week it feels like it's been but, a while and yeah that's true i've but, been busy with life i haven't been on social media quite as much so i, I feel a little detached from things but you know i'm, I'm here i'm you're normally detached anyway so <laughs> I meant physically this time, not mentally. But oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we're um, kind of switching things up on the show a little bit this week, and rather than doing our standard format of you picking a game, then the next episode I pick a game, uh, we decided, and you know, this was kind of your idea. I don't really mm-hmm. even remember what fully prompted this, but um, yeah, we decided that we're kind of going to take a chronological look through the life of one system in particular. Uh, in this case, we're doing the NES. And if this is successful and we have a good feedback, then we'll you know maybe try this with other systems later. But the idea was you know we kind of wanted to spotlight the NES, which I think is a, of the era of games that we talk about on here, mm-hmm. which spans you know about six or seven different consoles. The NES is kind of you know one of the most central for probably all of our childhoods Mm -hmm. um and so we thought we'd start here and the idea is you know the nes had a had a long run you know debuted arguably in 1985 at least here in the u.s we're we're looking just you know domestically and ran all the way up until 1994 with its last game release and so we're going to take each you know for each episode we're going to take one year at a time and just kind of talk about that year, a little bit about the history, some of the really big titles that came out. But instead of focusing on the big games that kind of everybody knows and everybody was talking about, we're going to switch it up and kind of talk about maybe some of the underrated or less appreciated games that came out that year and maybe got overshadowed by your Marios and your Zeldas and your Mega Mans. And so, you know, it, it should be an interesting take. We're not just talking about the same things that probably every other podcast is talking about so you're still going to get a little bit of a unique uh review of some games but um doing it in a little bit of a chronological order and system here so mm-hmm. i think yeah, this will be an I interesting really wanted to just have like a uh sort of a spotlight the the underappreciated games of each year sort of and my idea was kind of like okay let's take a look at what games came out that year and let's take you know maybe we one game that we think is kind of underappreciated and just talk a little bit about it, you know, why we think it's good or why we think it was overlooked and just kind of go from there. Right. So hopefully people like it, send us your feedback, let us know what you think. And uh, also, you know, be sure to tell us what games you think were underappreciated. Cause you know, that's the other thing we always, or we all got that game as a gift from, you know, grandma who doesn't know any better or from the dump bin when we had just enough allowance money to get a cheap game. Uh-huh. And yeah, we everybody had, had Platoon or Fester's Quest, you know? Yeah, mine was To the Earth. You know, that was kind of the <laughs> um, legendary wings. I had for a while. But um, yeah, we all had those games that, you know, for whatever reason, we got to play and probably the majority of the gaming world 
skipped right over maybe mm -hmm. for good reason but um or maybe you rented something that you know nobody else rented because the popular titles were rented out yeah exactly and so you know yeah clue clue land it is you know oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get to that one <laughs> But um, yeah, so so that's the kind of the idea. If you've got some you know favorites or underappreciated games from the year we're talking about, be sure to uh, chime in and let us know. Um, kind of keeping up with this theme too, I think that each one of our graveyard duck challenges on the off weeks are going to also be from the same year that we were talking. So this last week we just did Ice Climber as our mm -hmm. challenge. So next yeah. week, next week, keep an eye out for a 1986 challenge game and go from there. So yeah. Um, okay, so where do you want to kick this off? Do we want to talk kind of just the history of Nintendo in 1985 and how this system all came to be? Yeah, I thought we could just go over it just a little bit. I mean, um, it's it's a topic that, um, you know, a lot of people have, have done a lot of research on and, and there's a lot of great videos on YouTube talking about this. But, uh, you know, specifically from from our perspective, you know, coming off of the, the crash of 1983, which was basically, you know, the, the glut of, of software produced by the, for the Atari 2600 by every, you know, publisher with no quality control whatsoever, just led to this, you know, massive amount of, of games and inventory that just at that point, nobody wanted and it just kind of bottomed out. So, yeah. And I mean, there was, there were other factors in there too, because I was, I was actually kind of curious about this because that's what I had always heard was that it was just there were too many games, there was no quality control. No, it's, I mean, that's a majority of it because, you know, if you look at the late releases on the 2600, there's some good stuff, but then, you know, you get all these different crazy games. I mean, like, I can't think of anything really specific off the top of my head, but like, you have stuff like Porky's or Return of the Killer Tomatoes and like, all these quick cash-in type games, Texas right. Chainsaw Massacre, and then you have like the adult games like Custer's Revenge and Beat 'Em and Eat 'Em, and you know all these weird pieces of software that you know were just quick to cash in on the fact that people were buying Atari games. Right. Well, and the other factors that did kind of contribute to it also were that number one, this is when home computers first started to really show up, mm -hmm. and they were depending on the model and the the brand there were some that were comparably priced to the home consoles and a, a lot of people were kind of looking at it like well why would i buy why would i spend this much money for a system that does nothing but play games when i could spend an equivalent amount of money for something that's an entire computer that plays the same games plus other things yeah. um yeah and, my first computer was the uh the ti texas instruments uh, 994a because those came out, um, I think they came out like 83 or so, but then they dropped in price to, I, I want to say like 99 bucks or something like that, maybe 199 And I got one of those for Christmas, and my grandparents got it for me, and they got one for themselves, you know? So it was like, you know, there's edutainment games, and there's regular games, and, you know, it was just a mixture of the two, kind of. So you're kind of right there, I mean, as far as, you know, there's PCs that are kind of doing similar things, but I right. think the majority of it's, it's be attributed to atari for the most part well and and the uh, also the idea that like there wasn't as much as you kind of hinted on there wasn't the um i guess quality control no but no. these companies were also making games for their competitors like atari was making games for other systems other systems were making games for atari so you know one of the interviews that i read with uh the CEO of maybe Sears or something, I forget what store it was, said that, you know, their entire game department had more shelf space dedicated to consoles than it did games because there were so many different consoles out there and people just got overwhelmed. It was... Yeah, I mean, you had like the Magnavox Odyssey and the Fairchild Channel F and the Atari and then you had like the ColecoVision which even had the adapter to play the Atari 2600 games on it. And Sears had the, the uh, telegames. Right. Radio Shack had a version two. Yeah. So yeah, everybody's cashing in on this, you know, this craze pretty much. Which... Right. Yeah. It would be like if you could go to the store right now and find six different systems that all played PlayStation four games, like, and the games were, you know, being made for each other. It was just, it's too much. And so they kind of just said like, yeah, we're, we're done with this. And, 
you know, the, the, the funny part about it was that games were still selling, mm-hmm. but they were selling for, you know, a dollar, two dollars a piece because oh, yeah. the stores just wanted them gone. Yeah. And I can remember even in the early 90s going into like dollar stores and still getting sealed Atari 2600 games, you know, for a couple of bucks, you know, like I think I got copies of Pole Position and some of the later releases, um, you know, some of the like the, the red box. Um, Atari games that came out like 85, 86, stuff like that. So, hmm. yeah, it's just, I mean, that, that stuff was everywhere. And it, right. it, was not, it was not uncommon then to find bargain bins full of Atari games because nobody wanted them. Right. You know, and that was actually, that was my first big foray kind of into collecting in the late 90s in college, going around and, and collecting Atari games because they were cheap. You know, it's like I had several Goodwills and uh, a couple of different thrift stores around the college I went to. So I was like, yeah, I'll hit these up and, and grab some games and whatever. So uh, that was kind of my first big collecting uh, system. Yeah. So that's when, you know, Atari or Nintendo kind of came along in 85 and the Famicom had been successful over in Japan for a couple of years at this point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Japanese industry and their opinion of games was very different they didn't have the crash no. and so nintendo no. was was fighting with this idea of you know that the ceos knew that if, if they could get the nintendo into the hands of consumers people would want it and they would buy it yeah. um, but it was just getting over that hurdle and convincing stores hey stock this mm-hmm. um and so kind of their initial idea was they did kind of a soft launch in New York area only. And this was in October of 85. Uh, and the kind of the deal that they made with all of the stores was they said, you know, we will come in and we will set everything up. We have these little demo displays. We'll set the display up. We'll bring the TV in. We'll bring the equipment. We'll even staff somebody who will stand there and kind of talk about it and be the sales rep for it. And in addition, any games or, so, or hardware that you buy from, or that we stock on your shelves that don't sell, we will buy back from you. Mm-hmm. So these stores basically had no excuse not to, other than it was going to take up some of their shelf space, but they weren't they weren't out anything if this failed. Exactly. Um, and so there's a lot of really cool stories about, you know, the, the executives of Nintendo, you know, hiding out in FAO Schwartz, you know, just watching people kind of play and look and, you know, test it out and maybe go, buy a copy or two and you know it, it just kind of went from there and they were right it was successful um the the hardware was good enough that a lot of these early games were arcade titles and the 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 system was was comparable enough to the the rom of the arcade that you it, it wasn't like when you played you know say donkey kong in the arcade and then you went home and bought the atari 2600 version and you're like yeah kind of mm-hmm. but it's like these games really were the full experience at home. Um, so yeah, it, it sold well and people saw it as more than just a toy. Um, Even though it was marketed as a toy in the beginning. Right. Exactly. They, yeah, they, they, they hold hurdle of the stigma of, of video games. Right. And that's exactly why they packaged the, the original Nintendo when it was sold and bundled, you had the control deck, you had two controllers you had the Zapper, and you had Rob the Robot. Um, and the two games that it came with were Gyromite and Duck Hunt. So the the Mario or Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt combo that everybody kind of thinks of, that was way later down the road. Yeah. Um, initially, they were trying to you know advertise and sell this idea of the robot and the gun. Again, making it look like, yep, it's it's a toy, it's fun. You know, mm-hmm. we can put it in toy departments. And it's not that, you know, video game. Right. And even if you look at the history of Nintendo and you go back, you know, even before that, in like the, the 70s, when, I mean, they were primarily a, a toy manufacturer, you know, for a long time. And if you look at like, like Gunpei Yoko, if for instance, that developed a lot of, uh, you had a hand in developing the Game Boy and quite a few other games, but, you know, he was a big toy fan and a big toy maker and stuff like that. So a lot of stuff that you saw, like that were like in mechanical toys and things like that. It makes sense that in the eighties then they would kind of just brand it as a toy because they already kind of had that experience, Mm -hmm. you know? 
thought that was good. So yeah, so it was a soft launch in New York, and then come '86, they were successful enough that it went worldwide, but well, or nationwide. But we'll we'll get to '86 in a couple weeks. So for now, we're just looking at kind of that initial October through December era, and um, w- when it when it debuted, there's some debate about how many games actually came out with it. The the research I did and the lists that I found, uh, including one advertisement from, I think, a Macy's at the time, lists a total of 17 launch titles. Um, that includes Gyromite and Duck Hunt, which came with it, and then 15 others. You said that you found a couple others that are debatable, whether they were 85, 86. So yeah, it's, it's, there's just not... I mean, at the time, they're just we didn't have launch dates like we do now. So it, it's just kind of scattershot. So there's, you know, the research that I did and the research that you did, you know, we each kind of came up with a couple different ones, but mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's just the way that some of these releases were back in the day. And we've talked about it before on previous episodes, but you know, sometimes, you know, if it said, okay, a game's coming out fourth quarter, it's like, okay, it might be October, November, December, you know, it's hard to say. So, and even with the launch, there's a couple of games that, you know, may or may not have actually come out. So, um, so we're going to be kind of playing a little bit loose with that a little bit, but right. You know, I mean, when you're talking October of 85, then, you know, that's really only, you know, three months, then the, the system's on the shelf. So there's not that many titles that could come out really. Right. And, you and this is, this is also an era too, where obviously third party development hadn't started Right. So all 17, 19, 20, however many launch titles you want to consider, these are all Nintendo, you know, produced cartridges. Yeah. Um, by 86. How, how much of a rush that it was, though, because um, a lot of these launch titles, if you open them up, a lot of them were actually just the boards from the Famicom versions, but with an adapter to play on an American NES. So mm-hmm. especially if you're an NES collector now, um, a lot of people tend to look for the um, the early black box titles with the Famicom adapters in them because you can take that apart. You know, you take the cartridge apart, you can use the Famicom adapter and put a Famicom game on it and play it in your NES. Right. You know? So if you have a top loader, it's easier. Um, so, I mean, that just goes to show like how kind of slapdash this was at, you know, the end of 85 and just kind of release this out there. Right. Right. So, I don't know. I think we we all know a handful of the games that are out for this. I think that a large number of these kind of went under the radar and didn't really get a whole lot of play. I mean, maybe at the time they did, but they were pretty quickly swallowed up by some of the big ones. And I think some of the bigger titles that we all know at this point, we already mentioned Duck Hunt. I mean, Duck Hunt is huge. Um, Excite Bike was part of this original launch, which I mean, we did a challenge about it um, months ago. Excite Bike is one that's been re-released. It's had sequels. Everybody knows Excite Bike, but you know you might not realize that that was one of the original launch titles. Um, the other obvious big one, and again, kind of a point of debate, is Super Mario Brothers. Now, all of the research that I did said that yes, this did indeed come out in that 1985 launch, although it might not have been part of the October launch. Um, the closest I could pinpoint it was that it was. It was definitely out by at least November, mm. but it might not have been in that initial hit the shelves um, opening day. Yeah, but um, it's it's hard to say on that because, and we'll talk about it more in '86. But I can remember when I got my NES, it was the uh, the control deck model that had Super Mario Brothers bundled. But I'm pretty sure I think it was either, like you said, it was either available right then or shortly after. But it was right. totally separate and not really you know, not really near as, as big of a game as it later became. No, although that's weird. And, you know, even like, obviously now we know that Super Mario Brothers is kind of, you know, the seminal game and Mario himself is the mascot for the entire console. Um, and, and that plays into the fact that a lot of these games, if you kind of watch it, Mario is a, has a cameo mm-hmm. um, as, oh, yeah. you know, somewhere, like either as a referee or as a side character like he's in so many of these yeah even going back to donkey kong and donkey kong jr i mean i don't know yeah but i'm saying like even here in 85 Uh like mario was in a lot of these games so it's surprising that if this character 
was in, you know, three or four of their 17 launch titles that they wouldn't have showcased Super Mario Brothers more. But um, yeah, but yeah. he wasn't really, I don't think as a character, I don't think he had quite taken off yet. You know, I mean, it's the the story that I've always read is, you know, it was, it was kind of originally based off of, you know, this uh, like this landlord or something like that uh, kind of thing. And it was just, I don't know how true that really is, but it's just kind of interesting that like, you know, like if you look at golf, for instance, like the, the main character is supposed to be Mario, you know, but doesn't quite look like him, more like an adult version of Mario, which is kind of weird, but uh, yeah, sort of a, and you had Mario Brothers, obviously in 84, which was a big thing, and then Super Mario Brothers being the sequel, so, but yeah, it wasn't until Super Mario Brothers took off that he sort of became much more iconic, you know. Yeah, I mean, so what else did he, what other cameos did he have? He was in golf, obviously. Um, he was the... The referee in tennis. He's the referee in tennis. He's at, in pinball, holding up the... Yep, he's in pinball. He is the main character in Wrecking Crew. Yep. Um, you know, they even call him Mario. He's just, you know, a construction worker this time. He's almost more, in 85, he's almost more just kind of an everyman, you know. A little bit, of, yeah. And... Not so it's so like Mario, the character, but just like Mario, the guy, you know, like, right. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, th th those were the big titles, you know, Kung Fu, I think would also fall into that category. I think that was a title that oh, most... Kung Fu was huge in the arcade. Yeah. Right. So I think those were the ones that were really kind of overshadowing everything else. Um, the, the remainder of the games, you know, I, I, I always really liked that they had, that they tried to brand the games under these, um, like, I guess, subcategories, like there was the, um, like the, 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 zap, the zapper series, there was yes. the yeah. sports and things like that. And I forget what they called each of the different, um, uh, some of them like wrecking crew and excite back. Those, those were under the programmable series, programmable series. That's right. They had the, uh, like the edit mode in them. Right, and then there was the the action series, which Ice Climber was part of. That Super Mario Brothers. I'm looking at the box. It was, you know, it says action series on it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's like it's just funny that they had these various things. And yeah, there were the Zapper series, which that included Hogan's Alley and Wild Gunman, Duck Hunt. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you had the sports series, which the the vast majority of these fell into that. You had your ten yard fight, which was your football game. You had baseball. You had golf. You had pinball soccer tennis you know so those were obviously covered you had the uh rob games gyromite and stack up so they you know they did kind of cover the gamut of genres which i think was mm -hmm. smart yeah, um, yeah but yeah i think that especially you know the sports games got overshadowed because it didn't take long before you started getting even better versions of sports games and these kind of early archaic one title sports games were yeah, not the greatest, but... Yeah, but I mean, at the time, look at the games that came before that, though, even like... I mean, if you look at your sports games on the Intellivision and ColecoVision, stuff like that, I mean, these were light years above what had previously come before. Oh, I mean, I owned Baseball All-Stars for the Atari 2600, and... Yeah. So... Yeah, it's just... It, it's a big difference, you know, graphically. I mean, they, they kind of play similar, but, uh, you know... Yeah, I mean, there's really only one template for a video game baseball, I think, when you only have a D-pad and two buttons. Well, I mean, it's something that you would see later on developed into, you know, much better games, obviously, like Baseball Stars, and, uh, Base Wars, and stuff like that. But yeah, as a start, I mean, I, I see where they kind of were coming from. You know, but yep. whether or not it holds up today is a different story, I guess. There's still some fun to be had. I, I took the time, you know, over the last couple of weeks and went through all 17 of these and spend a little bit of time on them. And yeah, you know, the sports games, you get bored with them pretty quickly, but they're, they're still solid. And yeah, I, I did play through them all myself too. And yeah, like you said, I spent a little bit of time on some of them. And I mean, like some of them just don't hold my attention, you know, as much as they just, some of the, like you said, the sports games, I just don't think that they hold up, you know, like tennis and baseball and stuff. Like I would play it for a couple of minutes and I'm like, okay, I'm good. You yeah. know, just, and that's fine. I can appreciate where they came from. Right. But. All right. So we talked about kind of what the big ones were. And I think those are the ones that everybody knows. Um, should we talk about maybe, 
our picks for some other overshadowed or underappreciated games? Yeah, I would say uh, if you've got, you know, uh, one that you thought of or, you know, a couple different ones, uh, I've got one that I was thinking of, too, that I've got some stuff I'd want to share about that. Sure. Um, I can go first since we're kind of on the topic of it anyway. And honestly, I won't have a whole lot to say about it because there's just very little meat to this game. But, um, you know, going through the list of the 85 titles here and um, the one that stands out to me as a game that I think is just a ton of fun. And I love going back and plugging it in every now and then. Uh, You can go buy it yourself right now for probably about $2 used. Uh, and I guarantee every used game store in the country has at least three or four copies sitting around. Um, I love golf. Hmm. Okay. Now, you know, a little bit of the history of this, I, I hadn't played the original golf when I was a kid, but I did have NES Open Tournament Golf, which was a oh, much yeah. later a- title. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was one that actually I first played NES Open Tournament Golf. Uh, September 91 was that, when that came out mm-hmm. because uh, my grandma, of all people, owned it. And mm-hmm. she, she got me onto it. And I was like, oh, OK, this is actually kind of fun. And the mechanics were solid. It was neat that you had different courses and you kind of re- remembered your uh, handicap as you played. And you kind of built up a um, like a bank account of credit in the uh the clubhouse so you could buy better clubs but like i always enjoyed playing that game as a kid if i wanted something that you know didn't require the same reflexes of say a ninja gaiden or a ghost and goblins or i just wanted something kind of mindless to zone out to for you know a good half an hour or something mm-hmm. and when i saw that you know yeah there was still the original golf i think i was at disc replay one day and it was like okay it's it's two dollars like why not and took it home and played it. And the interesting thing is that the mechanics are almost completely identical to NES Open Tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit that's different. Like you don't have as much control of like hitting the ball with backspin or topspin. Um, but otherwise, it's the same thing. There's you you still have to correct for you know the the wind. The you you get the same little meter for when you you go to swing. Like so. You, you pick your club, you kind of aim up, and then it's a it's a three-button sequence to hit the ball. Like, you hit it once, and that activates the backswing. You hit it again, and then he starts the forswing. And then the third time you hit it, you've got a little target you're aiming for. And if you hit to the left of the target, you're going to you know curve it off to the right. If you hit it to the right, it's going to curve off to the left. Um, and you know, the, the mechanics are all there. It's... Um, it's easy to get the hang of. It's easy to still get challenged by it. Uh, very easy to go in the water, go out of bounds. So it's the kind of game that uh, you can spend a lifetime kind of mastering and getting even better. But um, I don't know. Like there's just something really rewarding about perfecting your game, but at the same time, just playing something that is that, that couldn't be more simple and basic when you really break down what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're you're talking about uh, a framework that was sort of applied to like every popular golf game after that, and still is in use to this day. Right. For the most part, if you look at anything like Hot Shots Golf or even Mario Golf or anything, um, they're still giving you the option to use that three button, you know, swing that three button template, and that's I mean that's a testament to how strong of a mechanic that is as far as the accessibility. Um, you know, even a few weeks ago, um, here at my house, like Shannon and I were playing Mario Golf on the GameCube and just having a blast, you know, just going back and forth and uh, and playing. And it's it is it's so accessible, especially for people that don't play a lot of games that you can just you can just get it, you know. And, uh, and yeah, I totally agree with you there. So. Right, um, you know, and and the, a little bit of the backstory of the game, which some of this came to light, at least for me, when I got my Switch. And there was all the rumors and stories that all of a sudden came out of how the game golf was kind of this hidden Easter egg. It was yeah, on the switch Mm -hmm. and not to get into the whole story there, but um, it was, it was in there as kind of a, um, a a nod to the creator of the game golf, uh, Mm -hmm. Satoru Iwata, Mm -hmm. who was one of the CEOs of Nintendo. And he was a, a, 
a programmer and a coder for him. And in 1980, yeah. 1984, basically he created the compression tool that took the entire game of golf and compressed it down into a cartridge. Yeah. Um, he was it, an amazing programmer. And there's tons of stories out there. You can, you can read all kinds of different ones about how good he was as far as debugging and compressing things. And it's just, you know, it's interesting. And then especially if you followed um, his series, you know, a few years ago, Iwata asks where he talked to different game developers about the history of games and stuff. It's just, uh, it's, it's really sad that he passed away that we don't have that, that knowledge anymore. But uh, yeah, you're exactly right, though. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's just interesting that it doesn't seem like anything special today because, like you said, we have all these other versions of golf. We have games that are so fantastic and have so much stuff to them that the thought of it's like, oh, it's got 18 holes of golf on one game cartridge. Who cares? Um, But, like, that really is an amazing feat, especially when you compare this game to the other games in this you know, launch list and just how much detail there is in here. Like yeah. I said, the fact that you can hook it, you can slice it. Um, it does register when you go in and in bounds out of bounds. Uh, the wind is, is factored in there when it hits, you know, the, the green, it can roll, you know, it can start rolling up and roll back downhill. I mean, this is game physics, which that's kind of a big thing now, especially like with iPhone and Android games, like, games that have physics built into them people were losing their mind when breath of the wild came out and it's like oh like if you if the wind is blowing and you throw something like the wind might catch it and it'll roll different it's like they did this in 84 with golf Mm. and the fact that that was in there is just it's so impressive um oh yeah especially if you go back and compare that to golf on the 2600 you know or or something like that which only came out a few years before that mm -hmm. totally different so yeah, I just think that golf is one of those that is it's easy to get lumped into the other sports games for this era. You know, like we said, the ten yard fight, the baseballs, the kung fu, or the pinball, the soccer, tennis. But it's like all of those for us. You know, it, it seems like they're the same, but all of those other ones just have something so simple. Whereas this one just has this depth of you know physics and mechanics and. It, it really is, you know, above the par. I see what you did there. Okay, good. But um, yeah, so I, I don't really know what else to say about it. It's it's 1985. It's it's golf. There's 18 yeah. holes. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're trying to get the ball into the hole. What what do you, what more do you want? <laughs> but, right. right. Yeah, and especially. I mean, it's just it it was probably overlooked here. But if you look at the Japanese release, I mean, that was one of the biggest selling games because it was sort of marketed to people that didn't play a lot of video games or, you know, maybe uh, parents or, you know, adults, you know, to kind of just have an entry level sort of game to say, okay, this is a, this is a family computer. You know, here's a, here's a piece of software for, you know, for dad or something right. like that, the golfer. So I could totally see where uh, this sort of appealed to people that weren't necessarily into video games. Yeah. I mean, even, Again, I'm, we're going back to NES Open Tournament instead of this one, but even my dad, who has never touched a video game in his entire life, um, I I got him to sit down and we played this a couple of you know NES Open Tournament a couple of times, and he was he was like, oh, this is actually really fun. Like, and so yeah, the the least likely guy to ever play video games yep. found golf on Nintendo oh, sure. enjoyable. Yeah, um, and you'd see that replicated later on with Tetris. You know, yes. people that never played a game in their life, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, Tetris is really addicting. You know, well, yeah. it's kind of interesting. So that would be my little recommendation. If um, if you look at these black box games and think like, ah, eh, they're all just so dry or boring, or yeah, I'll I'll play it for five minutes and then I'll get bored and move on and do something else, or you're you always gravitate toward Kung Fu or Super Mario Brothers or excite bike go go try golf and like i said i promise you you'll find it for about two dollars um probably sitting under a table used to prop up a leg somewhere and uh you know maybe even be able to get it as an add-on if you buy something else (laughs) possibly i don't know i wish i would have known you were uh into that i just sold my box copy a couple weeks ago oh damn it (laughs) well it's propping up a table somewhere yeah so 
anyway, um, that's my pick. I wish I had to say about it, but I don't know. Golf. Yeah. Good pick. Uh, so, so what about you? What would your be? Mine's underrated. Because like I said, we were going back and forth on the research and, and not finding a lot of, um, you know, hard and fast release dates. So um, the game I picked um, is can be either attributed to a launch in October 85 or August 86. So I went off of uh, Nest Guides, um, nestguides.com. But uh, so my pick for an underappreciated game in 85 is actually Mock Rider. And uh, like I said, you could be 85, 86, but I'm going to treat it as 85, this one. So um, for those of you that might not be familiar with it, Mock Rider is a motorcycle combat game. Uh, it takes place sort of in a uh, uh, post-apocalyptic Mad Max style future. Um, where you have several different modes. So you've got um, sort of the story mode, which is, um, you know, go through a certain amount of levels and, you know, try to um, search for civilization or, you know, fight off the bikers, things like that. Then you've also got an endurance mode and you've got a solo mode. So um, what you're looking at is kind of a similar to, you know, Sega's Hang On, which came out in the same year. But the fact is you have a motorcycle game in which you can fire a gun and um, shoot enemies and avoid obstacles in the road and things like that. So um, the reason that I kind of think it's sort of underrated is it. And uh, if you watch uh, Jeremy Parrish's series, Good Intentions on YouTube, he talks about a lot of the black box titles. But, you know, he kind of mentions that Mock Rider is one of the games that doesn't really feel like a Nintendo branded game. And that's I feel like that's kind of true because it's a little bit more violent, you know, than what we're kind of used to from Nintendo. And, you know, you kind of have a bit of a story mode here to it. And for a game at this time of release to kind of just have this brief bit of story is sort of unheard of, I think. Um, you know, even in the beginning, as far as when you uh, when you start the game, it just kind of even tells you it's the year 2112. The Earth has been invaded by forces of evil. Battle with invading forces as you race from sector to sector, searching for survivors. You are the Earth's only hope. You are Mach Rider. You know, like it really gets you into, you know, this sort of game world almost, which is not something that I was used to seeing with other titles around this time. You know, things like Hogan's Alley, Kluklan, stuff like that were more like basically just an arcade type game. And this one seems like it had a little bit more uh, detail to it. But a couple of things that I like about it is, um, you know, you've got three different modes, you know, however you want to play. You've got a design mode, uh, much similar to Excite Bike, where, you know, you could design a track and things like that. Um, now, however, the design mode, you couldn't save your course, you know, in the original cartridge because there was just no way to do it. In Japan, when this came out in the Famicom, it was compatible with the Famicom data recorder, which would allow you to save you know, custom tracks off of like Excite Bike and Mock Rider, stuff like that. So I guess if you leave the system on for a long time, you'd be okay. But um, no, what I really like about this game is it requires a good deal of skill, but it's actually really uh, enjoyable the more that you play. Because when I first started playing it, you know, you've got four different gear changes. So you can go, um, you know, shift up and down with your up and down on the D-pad. So at first, like, you kind of think, okay, this is a racing game. I need to just go as fast as I can. But if you do that, especially once you get to, like, the second level, there's so many obstacles in the road that you start crashing all of a sudden. So if you slow down and start shooting things, you start to think, okay, I don't have to, I don't have a, a hard set time limit, but I'm trying to strategically make my way through the level shooting bad guys and avoiding obstacles. And so, you know, the more that you play, you've got different color bikes that take different amounts of shots to kill. But also then if you crash those enemies into like the hazards on the side of the road, like the barrels and things like that, you'll get your bullets replenished. So there's some strategy into it as far as, okay, I'm running low on shots, so I need to find an enemy and, and push him into the side of the road to replenish my bullets. So I think there's some strategy there. Like I said, the, the, the mechanic of, Upshifting and downshifting throughout the levels, I think, really adds some as well. So, um, yeah, it's just the more I played it, you know, I started comparing it to other games that came out around the same time, like Hang On, Pole Position, things like that. And you can really see where not only that sort of type of game was, you know, 
use this as an inspiration, but I can't help but look at in 85, you know, what movie came out that was huge was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, you know? And so like this sort of post-apocalyptic feel, I feel like kind of just led into this game almost to kind of say, you know, here's a game for the Western audience, you know, that, uh, you know, is just crazy about like Mad Max and, you know, the sequels and things like that. It just feels like, I don't know, it feels so different than any of the other games that came out then. And also the other reason I feel like this is kind of underrated is it never really got any sort of sequel. I mean, it's been re-released on virtual console and things like that. And we've seen snippets of it in Smash Brothers and other games. Uh, Where where, where is it in Smash Brothers? Uh, So it's the music is selectable in um, Smash Brothers on GameCube and uh, Brawl and Wii U. So I forget. I think it's on the... I think it's on the F Zero levels that you can uh, occasionally change the music to the um, Mock Rider theme, huh. uh, which is cool because it's like a remix of it. And if you go and listen to it on YouTube, if you listen to the Smash Brothers Mock Rider remix, it feels like a ska remix almost. Like it's so like fast and upbeat almost because it's just such an odd sound. I can't really describe it, but you, you should go listen to it. But I don't know. Um, this is a game that I feel like, and it'll probably never happen, but. If there was a remake of this, I would love to see like almost like a Road Rash style remake of Mock Rider, you know, use and it would be easy to do. Use the Mario Kart 8 engine, you know, take those assets and kind of repurpose them for like Mock Rider, give it like 12 player online and just make a like motorcycle combat racing game. Like I would love to see a game like that. Hmm. You know, it's just not something that Nintendo's ever really gone back to. And it kind of surprises me a little bit. So Yeah, so I was kind of a little bit mixed on this one just because the list that I found, like it was not listed as 85. Like I saw, def- you know, August 86 for sure. Um, and that's possible. But like I said, I the couple of things I saw, it said 85. And I thought, you know what? It's, it's underrated. And it probably maybe came out about that time. So I'm going to go ahead and discover it anyway. Sure. Um, so... Th- I guess my only point was that I did not replay it, you know, in preparation for this. So it's, it's been, I think I fired it up a few months back, but uh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't dedicated much time to this in a long time. So I'm not yeah. real and fresh on it, but. Um, that's why I said, like, give it a shot and just keep in mind that, um, you know, yeah, there is a timer, but, you know, take your time going around the curves and downshifting and upshifting. And uh, you really start to get a feel for, um, how intricate this is as far as from a design perspective. I mean, there's more to it than what you would initially think. And, and that's a, a really fair and valid point um, because you're exactly right. This just plays at least initially as, you know, your hang on or your enduro or pole position or any of those other games where it's just, you know, race <laughs> to the end, you know, there, there's all these computer enemies along the way that mm-hmm. you're, you're basically trying to air quotes beat them. Um, although you also happen to have a gun. Um, the difficulty of this scales up really, really quickly. It does. By the second level, it, it's throwing everything at you right, right away. There's rocks like in the middle of the road. So it's not just, oh, you're going faster and the turns come you know quicker and more sharply and that sort of thing or there's more oil slicks it's like no there's now like boulders in the middle of the road right and there's and, bombs and things like that like so can it, you imagine, like playing this online with with people and like you know kind of like mario kart style like dropping those hazards in the in the road for people behind you that would be awesome yeah so it's it gets difficult really quick and mm-hmm. that can be a turnoff for people i think um, I know that it was, you know, for me, just because I, I didn't dedicate, you know, quite the time that I should, and also didn't realize some of the depth to it. Like, yeah, I did not know that knocking people into barrels gives you more ammo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, and that's the thing that, you know, the other reason I think it's it's sort of underrated is it's a much more skill-intensive game than almost any of the other ones that came out around this time. And unfortunately, a lot of games from this era that are older like this if you have a game similar to this where there's more depth to it or more controls or more nuance than just what's obvious from the surface it's probably going to get missed 
because mm -hmm. I doubt too many people that pick up Mock Rider, you know, especially if it's, you know, their virtual console copy or they got a used copy at, uh, you know, Mega Replay or whatever. Nobody's sitting down and reading the instruction book for Mock Rider. No, no, you'll play it for a couple of minutes. You'll crash into a couple of rocks and you'll be like, you know what, I'm done. Right. You know, and, and it's because I think that people are going to just assume that sure this doesn't have anything more than what's on the surface. Right. So you play that for the obvious part. You're like, oh, this is really hard. Eh, it's not really my thing. And yeah, after five minutes, you kind of get bored. You move on and do something else. Right. So it, it's a, it's really a shame. And it's almost ironic that it's, you know, to the game's detriment that it was ahead of its time mm -hmm. because now, you know, to retroactively go back to it, it, it gets overshadowed because it was better than everything else. Yeah. Um, which yeah, is, and then, you know, you look at like the success that the Road Rash series had on the Genesis, and you think, you know, there was a market for this game, you know, to sort of come back, but it's sort of it's just in that that strange area of almost being a little bit too violent for Nintendo branded game, I guess. I don't know. There's obviously, I mean, this motorcycle combat games are, they're fun, especially with online multiplayer and stuff like that. Like, if you totally brought this back, I think it would be, I think it would really appeal to a niche group of gamers, but I think it would also be something that you could probably make it, you know, cheap enough without, you know, spending a lot of development assets on it that it could still be enjoyable. Sure. But whether or not that will happen, probably not. But, you know, it's fun but, to speculate on it. Well, and it's another game that's, you know, incredibly uh available like virtual console for sure but also yeah. you know it, it hasn't been forgotten completely but it still kind of exists on the on the outskirts a little bit i feel like loose cartridges are valued at about five dollars right now so yeah. you're gonna find it i think that if i tried right now there's two different stores in town that have i think four copies total so it's mm -hmm. It's around uh now interesting the if you find a shrink wrapped new copy that's worth a thousand dollars right now. Well, did somebody actually pay that much for it, or is that what somebody's asking? Uh, this is based on actual sales. So hmm. now they they average one sale a year, so it's not uh, yeah happening all that often. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it probably was decently rare because it, you know either it didn't sell a whole lot of copies or maybe they just didn't print a lot of them. It's hard to say, but I would definitely recommend it as being you know, an underrated game to, to check out and give a second chance. So. Yeah, I, th I think people should. I think that, you know, it's it's easy enough to get your hands on. Um, you're not out anything. So if it turns out that it's not for you, okay, well, there's five bucks down the toilet, whether it was the cartridge or the virtual console, that's all you're spending. And, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it, it is a fun game and it's it's got more meat to it. Um, you know what game this reminds me of? Hmm. Did you ever play Knight Rider for NES? Oh, yeah. It's, I need to dig that out again, because that's one that my cousin had when I was a kid. And, you know, back in the era where you only had two dozen games that you had access to, and so you loved all of them. And, yeah, I spent many days and weeks playing Knight Rider, mm -hmm. and I remember really liking it. And it might be a big steaming pile now, but... Uh, it's not bad. I think I revisited it... Uh... I don't know, maybe a few months ago, and I was kind of just going through some different games. And it's I, I, it's better than I remember it being, I guess I'll say that. Like, it's not great, but it's not terrible. But it's like, for a licensed game, it's it's enjoyable, you know? It, it's got a similar mechanic to this, right? Where, you know, you're obviously driving, but also shooting and... Yeah, a little bit. But more like, not. I don't know, it's it's like a weird mix of Mock Rider and Rad Racer, almost. Yeah. You know, but this almost reminds me more of... Uh, Road Blasters, which would have come out two years later, but uh, I played the hell out of Road Blasters in the arcade. And, um, I owned it on the Atari Lynx and stuff like that. Like the, especially like the the destroyed post-apocalyptic city backgrounds in Mock Rider remind me a lot of of Road Blasters because it's kind of the same again, sort of same theme, you know. But in that one, you're driving a car and you have power-ups that drop down and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's why I like this game, you know. Because because I like Road Blaster much. I don't know. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, um, anything else about Mock Rider you wanted to bring up or talk about? Um, you know, not too much else. There was a, uh, we, we talked about in the beginning of the episode, the um, 
a lot of the toys that uh, Nintendo did in the seventies. There was a toy uh, that was actually called Mock Rider. Uh, it was a mechanical uh, race car, and it sat on this little uh, stand, and you had this little four-speed gearbox. And you know, you went through one, two, three, and then four. And when you hit four, then the car would launch, and it would just you know go in a straight line. So I'm thinking that's probably where they kind of you know took the name for the game was mm-hmm. from based on the toy a little bit. But you can look that up on YouTube as well and see kind of it's it's kind of neat. I mean, if you're if you're a fan of you know some of these old mechanical toys like that, it's pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah the, bo- just, the box would sell me, I think. What? The box would sell me. It's pretty cool looking. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, it's really work. cool. Yeah, it's got that just I don't know. It's got that retro toy vibe to it. I can't yep. really describe it other than that. But uh, well, it is a retro toy. That's true. But even when it originally debuted, I guess maybe but I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting though because if you if you look at some of the the stuff out there on Mock Rider, especially like uh, like I'm looking at like Wikipedia now, and it's kind of interesting how it's kind of sort of tied into F-Zero a little bit, uh, you know, as far as uh, some of the different crossover stuff. That would be kind of neat, I guess, if we were going to get a new F-Zero game at some point, it would be cool to at least put some Mock Rider stuff in there, or at least, you know, make it part of the same universe. I don't know. Yeah. So, like I said, it's just, it's, it hasn't been for, forgotten completely, but it's kind of a an outlier, I guess. It is pretty obscure. I'll give you that. All right. So uh, real quick, you know, kind of to wrap up this conversation, I was going to hit a couple of the other highlights from the year. Again, there's there's not too many. Um, but I would say if you're a fan of the Zapper, uh, Wild Gunman is pretty simplistic. You're basically just doing quick draw. Boy. What's that? That's a baby's toy. <laughs> two, the greatest movie ever made. But uh, yeah, so, you know, quick, you know, quick draw matches against various gunmen uh there's not a whole lot of meat to it but hogan's alley is i think a, a great game so it was tough not Hulk hogan's alley which you know there's all those lawsuits and uh, that's that's a different alley you don't yeah i'd stay away don't, don't go down that one stay away from that one brother <laughs> um but yeah i think if you're a fan of the zapper and you've never played hogan's alley it's it's a lot of fun. Very similar mechanic to Duck Hunt. In fact, it even has a couple of the same sound effects, but um, shooting cardboard cutouts of gangsters and cops instead of ducks and clay pigeons. Um, yeah. I had Hogan's Alley. Um, I don't. I got that probably in like '87 or so. I enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, if you if you have a working Rob or can ever find one, check out Gyromite just because it's. Not a great game, but it is really neat to see Rob actually in action. Um, mm-hmm. If you're unaware, you can YouTube it to kind of see what Rob does. But basically, he has a light sensor in his eyes that see what's going on in the screen and can control these little tops that he spins and sets onto the buttons that pushes on a controller. It's incredibly cool and very, very impractical. But at the same time, it's neat to see. Mm-hmm. Um then, yeah, we talked about all the sports games. I think the only other real notable titles in here, um, I don't know, Ice Climbers uh, seems to be popular. I'm not a huge fan, but it's kind of addicting in its own kind of stupid way. Yeah, um, but it, the characters have become more famous, I think, thanks to Smash. Yeah, Smash Brothers has brought them back. Um, personally, it, I might get some flack for this, but Wrecking Crew and Clue Clue Land both, I'd say just completely avoid. I found... I would say I I actually kind of like Wrecking Crew. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because it's programmable, just like Excite Bike. However, I never programmed anything in Excite Bike. Like that was just a feature that I tried once or twice and was like, yeah, this is more work than it's worth, mm-hmm. and just played the existing courses. And Wrecking Crew would probably be the same way, but I, I don't know. I feel like Wrecking Crew is a little bit more of a puzzle game, a little bit at least in the single player. I, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then there's one on um, the Super Famicom later on that got uh, Wrecking Crew '98, which is a completely different game. It's almost more of a puzzle game. That was really cool, but the first one's okay. It's just different. And yeah, like I said, Clue Clue Land. Are you are you gonna try to defend that one? Uh, you know, I would try to, but it's one that I've played a little bit here and there to try to grasp the concept of it, and it's just a little too strange to me. Mm. Like, I mean, as far as I don't know the the mechanic of grabbing on to you know like a little um, 
part of the stage and kind of swinging around it is such a weird mechanic to get used to. Uh, I just haven't played enough to really get it. So I know there's something there, but I just I've never really spent the time on it to to dig into. I could maybe see it working as an arcade game if you have the right like controller, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I gave it some decent time, and I would still say that anytime I picked it up for the NES, it's just I, I always. It's interesting about Cuckoo Land though is that uh, it's it's obvious where Zelda borrowed the rupee design from because oh yeah. Yep. If you look in Cuckoo Land, it's the same exact sprite as the Ruby. Yep. So, yeah, all in all, I mean, 85 had a lot of good games in it. Uh, the, the big ones that we all know are still kind of up on a pedestal, but I think there's a lot of hidden gems in here that you can still dissect and mm-hmm. get, get, some, get some joy out of. So, yeah, I think so. don't dismiss it just because it's in a black box and is old. Mm. But, um, yeah, so anything else 1985 you want to talk about? Uh, not really. I mean, like I said, I didn't have my NES at this time, so you know, I'm just kind of looking at it from the perspective of, of coming to it later. But, you know, you have a mixture of arcade titles and, um, you know, sort of home console titles. Um, yeah, it's just, it's different. So it's worth looking into. Definitely. All right, so next week we've got... Uh moving into 1986 and got another graveyard duck challenge for him, don't we? We do. Yeah, actually. And uh, it's going to tie into 1986. So, and kind of a, a sequel challenge to one that we did a few weeks ago as well. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to be playing Donkey Kong Jr. Uh, for this next graveyard duck challenge. So we're looking for, you know, your highest score on one credit. So, uh, you know, Donkey Kong Jr. Preferably the NES version. Um, that would be, you know, kind of primarily the one that we're looking for. So um, take a picture of your high score, put your initials in there, and hashtag the Graveyard Duck Challenge on there. Hashtag Graveyard Duck Challenge. And post it to our Facebook group, post it to Instagram, Twitter, wherever you follow Graveyard Duck. Uh, yeah, and uh, let's let's see who can get the high score. Yeah, you can play A mode or B mode, and if you get the high score on B mode, then, you know, even even better bragging rights, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to this one because uh, I have I have some nostalgia for Donkey Kong Jr. because um, there was a restaurant that we would, used to go to in uh, town that I grew up in, uh, Grecian Gardens, and it was uh, you know they had like the coffee shop area and then there was like the bar area that was off to the other side, and uh, the owners' kids would hang out there and occasionally when we went there like I'd play with them like they'd bring their GI Joes and stuff like that, and then we'd sneak into the bar you know when it was it was closed you know during the week or whatever but they had a donkey kong jr machine back in the corner there so we'd always sneak back there you know and plug it in and play it for a while and stuff like that so uh that's kind of what i always associate that game with a little bit which is cool so looking forward to playing it again it's been a while since i've played it yeah it's definitely a fun game so participate in that post your high scores and uh stay tuned for two more weeks when we dig into some more 1986 and mm-hmm move our way through the history of the NES. But um, yeah, if people have history or their own nostalgia for 1985 or games that they loved or what some of their favorites were, or if they want to defend Clue Clue Land, um, how do they get a hold of us, Wes? Well, I don't know if anybody's going to come to, you know, to Clue Clue Land's defense, but uh, I'd, I'd sure like to hear it if you do. Though. Um, yeah, so obviously, like I said, we've got our Facebook group, which is uh, where the majority of our conversations are taking place. Uh, Graveyard Duck Podcast, we're on there. Uh, we're on Twitter at Duck Graveyard. You can find us on Instagram as well, Graveyard Duck Podcast. And we've got a Discord group as well. So we've got a lot of other venues in there, which we're talking about other classic games as well. But uh, yeah, um, you know, we, we hope that you kind of enjoy this new direction for a little bit as far as going chronologically and just kind of looking at kind of underappreciated games. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's fun to kind of talk about games that, have fallen out of the spotlight a little bit or things that we recommend. So we hope that you enjoy it. And, you know, or, you know, you can always shoot us an email too, graveyard.podcast at gmail.com and tell us your memories and recommendations as well. So, and if you like the show, like I said uh, before, please leave us a review on iTunes. That definitely helps and helps us move up in the rankings and stuff like that. So hope you enjoy the show. Yeah. Yeah. Send us your feedback. We love to hear it. So, um, 
that's, I think, all we've got to talk about this week. So stay tuned. Send in some Donkey Kong Jr. scores for next week. And um, yeah, we'll be back with another episode in two weeks. So until then, I'm Scott. And I'm Wes. And just remember that you are the Earth's only hope. You are Bach Rider. Game over. <laughs>